So glad you've come on this Easter Sunday morning. Want to welcome you again. And if um, this is your regular place of worship, welcome to the best Sunday of the entire year. And uh, if you're joining us for the first time, we're so glad you've uh, come this morning. What I hope to be able to do is to lay before you the reason for this significant celebration that we call Easter. If you're a follower of Jesus, what I'm going to share with you should, within your heart, make you go, yes, that's true, and I love it. If you're not a follower of Jesus, my hope is that by the end of my talk, that you'll be convinced that what the Bible says about Jesus is in fact true, or at least there'll be a part of your heart that begins to wonder, what if, what if this actually happened? I don't know about you, but I love before and after pictures. It's, it's funny, as I get older, I have more before and after pictures. Uh, not too long ago, my kids were looking at some before pictures, and they said, my goodness, Dad, years ago you had lots of hair. And I said, be quiet, right? I love it where it's a house. You see the before pictures, the after pictures. We have some of those in our home where we bought a really run-down, messed-up house. Think hoarder house, 900 pounds of urine-stained carpet, four inches of water in the basement, the whole thing. When people come to our house, I love to show them what it was like when we bought it. I love to see pictures of people, how they've transformed from one particular person to another. In fact, think of all of the television shows that sort of have this genre connected with it. You have shows like Biggest Loser, where someone loses a bunch of weight, deals with some personal and emotional issues. You have programs like Fixer Upper, where they take an old house in Waco, Texas, and turn it around and make it a nice, beautiful home. Or Maybe the, um, the ESPN show 30 for 30, which is a documentary of the progression of an athlete's life. In fact, the subtitle on that documentary series is that 30-30 is too dramatic not to be real. There's something about those stories of transformation that we really love and frankly are a bit inspiring. Like, I get done watching Biggest Loser and I'm inclined to do a couple push-ups. Just a couple. Or maybe eat carrots for breakfast, like really intense. Or I see a, a fixer-upper show, and I'm like, man, that'd be great to do that kind of project at our house. They, they serve to in, inspire us as we see things that move from before to after. That transformation is something that is just really significant and inspiring. This morning, we're talking about the greatest transformation moment that ever happened in human history. Before Easter Sunday, there was a bloody cross, but after Easter, there was an empty tomb. Before Easter, there was a horrible death. And after Easter, there was this promise of new life. Before Easter, it looked as though Jesus was a false prophet, just another one. And after the empty tomb, after Easter, the resurrection communicated that he really was who he claimed to be. So, Easter is a phenomenal before and after story, a transformation story, but it's not the only one. In fact, it was the first of all kinds of transformation stories that were gonna happen as the resurrected Christ begins changing people's lives. And I could line up story after story after story throughout human history, throughout biblical history, even within this room of people whose lives have been radically changed by the resurrected Christ. But if I had to choose one particular story in the Bible, it would be this story of the Apostle Paul who before he met Jesus was called Saul. Paul would be on the top of the list because there was a particular moment in Paul's life where he encountered the resurrected Christ and it changed everything about him. 
And so my aim this morning is to walk you through this theme that is really the focal point of what we're talking about on Easter Sunday, this idea of darkness to light and then for life. I want to help you see through the story of the Apostle Paul's life how this transformation takes place in him so that if you are a follower of Jesus, you could rejoice and realize, you know what, that's what happened to me, praise God. He is risen, he is risen indeed. And if you're not a follower of Jesus, particularly that you would perhaps come to believe, come to receive the gospel, and even in this very moment, move from darkness to light for life. So let's first look at how dark Paul's life was. A particular chapter that I'm in is in the book of Acts, chapter 26. If you have a copy of the Bible, you might want to turn there. You're just going to see how I'm going to walk you through a, a story that's recounted. You could read it for yourself and explain a little bit about it. If you don't have a Bible with you, just grab your phone and Google Acts 26, verse 9. You'll see it. The setting for this particular chapter in the Bible is that Paul has been arrested. He went to Jerusalem, began preaching that Jesus was indeed raised from the dead. The religious leaders placed him under arrest and then turned them over to the Roman government. And Paul is making his way through the courts. He has arrived in the city of Caesarea. He has appealed to Caesar to hear his case. He comes before a provincial Roman ruler named Festus, who hears his case, but he's He's perplexed by it, and so a friend of his, who's a fellow ruler in Judea named Agrippa, who had oversight of the temple and Jewish customs, he even picked who would be the high priest. He was in town, and so he invited Agrippa to come and hear Paul's case so that Agrippa could give this other ruler some advice. And so the moment that we pick up the story, Paul is appearing before King Agrippa and before Festus, Paul, just so you know, was a phenomenal missionary, probably, inarguably, I think, the, the greatest missionary the world has ever seen. Christianity spread throughout the Roman Empire to Gentile people in large part because of the Apostle Paul's ministry, and he authored 13 of the 27 books of the New Testament. Nobody in the first century had more influence on the expansion of Christianity than Paul, and you're gonna see why. As he stands before them in verse eight, he says this, this is Acts 26, 8. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? That's the question, isn't it? That's the question. And Paul now wants to give evidence as to why they should believe that Jesus indeed is risen from the dead. He then recounts his past, and it's a dark one. He says in verse 9, I myself was convinced... Keep an idea, on, keep your eye on that word, we'll come back to it. I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. See, Paul was trained in the best Judea, Jude, Jewish schools. He was a Pharisee, one who understood the, the Old Testament law. And he viewed Christianity as an affront to his Jewish tradition, and so he began persecuting the church. Verse 10, in an official way, he did so in Jerusalem, and then he says, I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. So Paul would arrest them, bring them back to Jerusalem, and when they were either locked up or some of them executed, Paul would give evidence as to why that should indeed happen. 
Verse 11, it goes even further. And I punished them often in all the synagogues. Synagogues were worship outposts outside of the city of Jerusalem and in other countries or other provinces. And Paul goes and travels all over in order, he says, to try to make them blaspheme. So what Paul wants is for these believers in Jesus of Nazareth to be put under such pressure that they would say, okay, okay, I don't believe him anymore. And that they would deny their faith. The text says, in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. Now, we don't know how many people exactly Paul persecuted or brought to trial or arrested, but we do know that there was no one more dangerous during the first century than Paul. He was greatly feared. But the problem is not just what Paul did. Go back to verse 9. Remember that word I told you to remember? He says, I myself was convinced. Oh, that's important. You see, the problem is with Paul, not just what he did. That was surely bad enough, and Paul would talk about his past for the rest of his life. But Paul's problem, not unlike our own, was not just that he did wrong things. No, his problem was worse than that, and our problem is worse than that. It was that Paul was convinced in doing the wrong thing, that he was actually doing the right thing. That's the tragedy of the human condition. His actions were terrible, but it is his blindness that is truly tragic. Here he is, a religiously devout man. He's trained in the best schools of the day. He has full knowledge of the scriptures. He's absolutely convinced, and yet he's totally wrong. Now, some of you, when you hear the story, you're immediately thinking, man, that's inexcusable. Total hypocrite. How could he do that? You know, and it would be easy to hear Paul's story in Acts 26 kind of cast a dim eye upon him and view him as though his actions and his attitude were somehow the exception to the norm. But do you know the Bible tells us that Paul's story is really our story? Paul's story is my story. Paul's story is your story. 2 Corinthians 4 tells us that the spiritual condition of people apart from Christ is that we are blinded. We don't see what we need to be able to see. Romans 1 tells us that as human beings, our our natural and human condition is to have futile or powerless thinking such that our hearts become darkened. And when this happens, we become convinced that we're right even though we are terribly wrong. Can you think of the last time that happened to you? Even after you come to faith in Christ, there's still remnants of this human condition that's a part of of our everyday life. I was asking my children over lunch yesterday if they could think of any scenario that they've ever encountered with me where I was absolutely convinced, but I was absolutely wrong. And I assumed there was probably no example that they could provide. (laughs) And they quickly said, oh, I've got one. I was like, oh, great. And I said, yeah, yeah, there's driver's training, and we pulled up to the stop sign, and you said, turn left. I said, okay, and then I started to turn left, and you said, no, turn left, turn left, turn left. And I said, Dad, I am turning left, I am turning left. I said, no, turn left. And then someone in the back seat said, Dad, you mean right. And I was like, right, right, turn right. (laughs) They told me that story, and I said, that didn't happen. And then my three sons said, we were all in the car. We can all testify, Dad, it happened. So in that moment, I heard a story about being convinced, and I was actually 
convinced in that moment. So you see the point? You can look back on your life, and my guess you can see scenarios like that at varying levels. That's a small one. Some other scenario in your life, you look back at what you were doing in high school or college or, or maybe just even what happened this last weekend, and you think, what was I thinking? You know the problem is? The problem isn't that you're not thinking. The problem is, is that your thinking is darkened. It's that we convince ourselves. The Bible describes this condition as being dead. We, we convince ourselves that we're right. Give me some examples of how we do this. We, we, we look at other people and their shortcomings and we convince ourselves that while we may do wrong things, we don't do like that kind of wrong stuff. And so therefore we think, oh, I'm better than most people. And we convince ourselves or we convince ourselves that we deserve the joy or the pleasure or a satisfaction of something that we know that doesn't belong to us or that we shouldn't do, and yet we do it anyway. We convince ourselves, I need this. And then with a little distance or time, we look at our lives and think, what was I thinking? Or we get involved in addictive behaviors or actions, and we convince ourselves, I can stop anytime. Or we say things that, we know aren't right or that are hurtful, but we convince ourselves that our feelings or our pain in that instant gives us the right to say something. So when you, when you look at the Apostle Paul and how he had convinced himself, you need to realize that that is the condition of every single human being. You can look back on your life. You could see a relationship that in your past you know that you shouldn't have been in or how you treated your friends or your parents or your roommate, and now you realize how mistaken you were, or maybe you were terribly unkind to someone, and while it seemed oddly fulfilling in the moment, you look back and think, oh man, what was I thinking? I'll tell you what, friend, if you look far enough into your life, if I look far enough into mine, if you look far enough into Paul's life, you'll see elements of this blindness. Because this blindness, this dark-heartedness, this being convinced, is part of what it means to be human. Paul's problem is my problem. Paul's problem is your problem. We all share this common problem, and it relates to why Easter is so important. Because Jesus is able to move people from this kind of darkness to light. Let's see what happens in Paul's life. Verse 12, we learn about Paul's encounter with Jesus. It says, In this connection I journey to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven. So Paul's traveling to Damascus to be a persecutor. In the middle of this journey, a light shines upon him. He says, brighter than the sun, it shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goats, meaning you're, you're pressing against the boundaries all the time. And I said, verse 15, who are you, Lord? And imagine this moment. Moment, and the Lord said to me, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Can you imagine? Face down on the ground and suddenly Paul realizes it's true. He's alive. In that moment, Acts chapter 9 tells us that scales came on to Paul's eyes. He was blinded. For three days he remained in a house. Another man named Ananias came and laid hands on him and prayed for him. The scales fell off his eyes. He professed allegiance to Christ. And in 
Paul's story, he is miraculously transformed with an encounter with the resurrected Christ. He was confronted with who Jesus really was, and that changed everything. He, in effect, saw the light. Now, some of you are immediately thinking, well, I'd believe too if I was walking on the road and a bright light shone around me and Jesus said, John, John, why don't you follow me? Do you know what? The Bible speaks today for Jesus. Jesus speaks through the word. Paul came to a face-to-face encounter with his past and with who Jesus really was. He met Jesus. He came to understand that the resurrection was indeed true. And if that was true, then everything about Christianity was true. 2 Timothy 3.16 tells us that this word is God-breathed, which means that it is God's word to you, whether it's being spoken to you, whether, it's you, whether you're reading it on your own, that, that these words have the same power in your life that Paul received on the road to Damascus. Hebrews 4, verse 12, tells us that the word of God is living and active, meaning that it it does things in our life, and that particularly it's a discerner of the thoughts and the intentions of the heart, which means that if you read the Bible, eventually you're going to run into things where it sort of slices your heart open, and suddenly you see yourself in ways that you didn't see yourself before. The reality is, because you're here hearing this about Acts 26 today, you are right now thinking differently about your soul than what you would have been if you're home watching Meet the Press, or watching a basketball game on TV, or some Hallmark movie that ends like every other Hallmark movie ends. (laughs) Just saying, but that's beside the point. What the Bible does is it 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 opens the heart and you see yourself for who you are. And when that happens, you need to know it's the same kind of encounter that the Apostle Paul had with Jesus on the road that you have with the Word. The Bible tells us that the same God, 2 Corinthians 4, who said, light shine out of darkness, the same God who has the power of creation, is the same God who shines in our hearts the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus. So you may not, you may not believe the claim of the resurrection, but my question, my challenge to you would be, have you read the Bible? You say you don't believe in Jesus, but friend, have you read it? Have you read through the Bible? Because this word is the word of God that speaks to us. And it may even be, like right now as I'm saying these things to you, that something is happening within your heart that says, wait a minute, maybe what he's saying is true. And if that begins to happen in your heart, you need to know that's the fulfillment of 2 Corinthians 4, where the same God who said light is the same God who speaks into your heart even today, saying, look and believe. See, Paul came to the realization who Jesus was, that it was in fact true. He also came to realization that his sins were not just sins that were committed in general, but his sins were a personal affront to the risen Christ. Jesus says, why are you persecuting me? You see, sin is always personal. We have this idea of, We tend to neuter sin a little bit, like sin is just so general. Sin is always personal. It's personal to Christ, it's it's personal to us. That's why. For instance, when a a person is brought up to trial in some states, they say things like, the people of Massachusetts versus 
because the crimes that are committed are against the people. Or the, the guy in your homeowners association who doesn't pay his dues makes your dues go up the next year. I don't want to make you mad, but that's what happens. There's, there's, there's wages. You look at something that's pornographic, you're in effect funding and creating the industry that would cause someone to take pictures of themselves that later on in life they're going to regret. So the things that we do affect one another in dramatic and significant ways. And what Paul hears from Jesus is this, you are persecuting me. Romans 3 tells us, verse 23, that we have all sinned and fallen short of God's glory. What that means is that every time we decide to go our own way, we in effect say to God, I know what you say, but I'm going to go my own way. I know that you're supposed to be more beautiful and lovely and, and, and to be followed than anyone else in the universe, but I'm going to choose my own pathway. Our self-sufficiency, our desire for autonomy, these are things that challenge God's authority and the wages, the penalty of this, says the Bible, is death physical death, and eternal death. So sin is not just a problem because of what we do or just because of what it does to other people. It is a problem because of who God is. And one of the questions that I want you to think through with me this morning is this. When you die, then what? When you die and stand before God and he's holy and you're not and that's a problem, what are you going to do in that moment? According to the Bible, the only answer is that your sins have been forgiven through the sacrifice and offering of Jesus. In that moment, if God were to say to you, why should I let you into heaven? Your only answer, your only hope, when you stand before a holy God, is my sins have been paid for by Christ, and you promised me that if I'm in him, all my sins are gone. That is your only hope on that day of judgment. And make no mistake about it, friend, that day is coming, it is real, it will take place. And some of you, in your heart, for the first time, had this thought, that might be true. Paul understood that Jesus was calling him to believe. Jesus invaded his life. He found him on the road to Damascus and confronted him with the reality of who he is and what he was doing. And that may be happening, and I pray that it does for some of you today, that all of the circumstances of your life have not happened by accident such that you're in this room on this Easter Sunday hearing this particular message and God has ordained it from eternity past for this moment because there's some of you that God is calling to faith, calling you to believe even now. The Apostle Paul described it this way, the word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart, meaning you're this close to crossing the line. And what does he say? If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Here's what I hope happens to you. That's what happened to me. I heard this message. Something within my heart said, that's true. I believed it. And I gave my heart and life to Christ. And I could line up person after person after person after person who their life is the same story. In history, I could show you Blaise Pascal in the 1600s. A French mathematician and physicist discovered principles of the barometer and the law of hydraulics. He had a definitive conversion experience. It so moved him, he wrote about it on a piece of paper and sewed the piece of paper inside his coat. It said this. From half past 10 in the evening until half past 12, fire. God of Abraham, God of Isaac, God of Jacob, not of philosophers and savants. Certitude, certitude, feeling, joy, peace. God met him, confronted him. And that's what I hope happens for you. A more contemporary example, I was reading the story of 
The Conversion of Kristen Powers, a columnist for USA Today, political commentator. She was wrestling with the claims of Christ. She began attending Redeemer Presbyterian Church in Manhattan, and eventually she took another step. She went to a a Bible study. Here's what she says in her own words. I remember walking into the Bible study. I had a knot in my stomach. In my mind, only weirdos and zealots went to Bible studies. I don't remember what was said that day. All I know is that when I left, everything had changed. I'll never forget standing outside the apartment on the Upper East Side and saying to myself, It's true. It's completely true. The world looked differently, like a veil had been lifted off. That's how the Bible talks about it. In 2 Corinthians 4, there's a veil, and then that veil comes off. You see, and in seeing, you believe, and in believing, you're saved. She said this, I had not an iota of doubt. I was filled with indescribable joy. Friends, this is what it means to be moved from darkness to light. And I wonder if something within your heart if you're not yet a follower of Jesus, is drawing you, even daring you to believe. Can you really walk away from Easter Sunday after Easter Sunday saying, no, that's a complete lie, a complete fabrication? Chuck Colson said that Watergate taught him that the resurrection was true because 12 men could barely keep alive for three weeks with Watergate, and yet you've got disciples, 12 of them, who not only saw what they saw but they never wavered for 40 years from what happened. Could it be that God is shining a light in your heart to see the glory of God in the face of Jesus? Even as I share this with you now, the question would be, why, why not respond to what is happening inside of your soul and say, I, I believe? Why not make this the day where you move from darkness to light and then for life? The final effect of the resurrection in Paul's life was the way that it radically changed him forever. God is going to make Paul a witness. He will make you a witness, a testifier of this is what happened to me. I'm a witness today of what happened to me. We sing songs testifying to what God has done in and through us. And the aim of Paul's life was now forever changed. Here's what his mission is. Here's what I hope happens for you. To open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Oh, this is what I want to happen for some of you today, that you would be brought from darkness to light, that your eyes would see. Listen, that you'd be released from the power of Satan. Some of you, the enemy has such a hold on your life with guilt, such a hold in your life with something that's just dragging you entirely down. When you lay your head on the pillow at night, you know something is terribly wrong. And I'm telling you, what's wrong is sin. And the ultimate solution for that is a savior named Jesus who rose from the grave so you could be released from the clutches of the enemy. Do not let the enemy have one more day of victory in your life. Instead, come to Jesus. Announce once and for all, I believe that he rose from the dead. 
said, and I am a follower of his. And when that happens, the Bible says you not only receive forgiveness of sins, but you are among those who are sanctified, meaning that God declares you to be righteous. All your sins, past, present, and future, all forgiven. You die, stand before God, he opens up the account of your life, all he sees on that day is the blood of Jesus. You're absolutely forgiven, and your life is forever changed. That's what Easter is about. This is the good news. This is the miraculous transformation. Everything about Paul's life changed in that moment. To use Jesus' words in John chapter 3 when he talked to Nicodemus, he said that you must be born again. And that is what happened to Paul. He was born again. The resurrected Christ raised Paul's dead heart from his spiritual blind condition and gave him a new life, such that Paul, thinking about this later on to the book of, in the book of Romans, he says that when we, he died, when Jesus died, we died, and when he rose, we rose. What does that mean? That every time that someone moves from darkness to light, when they see the beauty of who Jesus is, when they confess Christ as being the Savior, and that he indeed has caused forgiveness to come into their heart, when they look to him in faith, what happens? in that moment is a mini resurrection takes place. Oh, there's coming another resurrection day, but in this moment, that heart has been raised from death to now life. Paul was a different person from that day forward. You could be a different person from this day forward. Easter is such a significant celebration because it marks the moment where once and for all, Jesus declared that the doorway of forgiveness is wide open and he made it possible for hope to be brought back to people who had none. So if you're a follower of Jesus today, you know that what I've just said is not only what you believe, but it is the greatest hope for all of eternity. That's why Easter is such a glorious celebration. And if you are not a follower of Jesus, can I just ask you, the inkling going on within your soul, that strange drawing to say, this actually might be true. Why not put your faith in Jesus today? Why not confess him as Lord and say, I believe? Why not confess with your mouth that Jesus is the Lord? Why not believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead? Why not open your heart right now with the light of the gospel that is attempting to shine through your heart? Why not realize that this could very well be your Damascus road, the day when Jesus showed up, that a year from now your testimony will be that in 2017 at Easter I saw something I never saw and it changed my life and I became convinced it's absolutely true. And it changed everything. Why not be named among those who've been transformed by the resurrected Christ? Let's pray together. Oh, Father, we thank you that this beautiful reality of the resurrection is the hope of every person who's ever called themselves a Christian. And this hope runs so deep into the fabric of our souls that it makes us new people. We are those who know Christ are indeed born again. They are a new creation. The old is gone, the new is coming. We thank you that that happened because of you, Jesus. And Lord, we today long for more people to become the followers of you, to be taken out of the clutches of the enemy, to be brought from death to life, from darkness to light, 
And Lord, I pray that you by your spirit would draw people to yourself and that even some, maybe even right now, would simply say right where they're seated, Lord, I believe and I receive you. Lord Jesus, I'm done with me. Take my life, please. Oh Lord, would you savingly convince people today of the beauty of who you are? Would you birth many new children into your kingdom on this Easter Sunday? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.